Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. So we're, uh, we're continuing on in our series, Eureka, today, where we're pouring through the Old Testament looking for um, examples of Christ that a lot of us grew up kind of afraid of the Old Testament or we don't really know what to do with it. But there are ways of engaging with those stories where we're seeking the face of Jesus. And it ties together the whole story. We recognize how vital it is that we have a thorough understanding of the Old Testament. And today I'm particularly excited because our very own Brie Fashini is giving her first sermon ever. No big deal. So Brie uh, is our kids coordinator. She's been part of our community for a while. Um, and you're actually in seminary right now. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're up to? Sure. Thank you, everybody. Um, you. My name is Bree, and yes, I am a member of this wonderful community we call City Beautiful Church, and I am a student um, at seminary. I go to Fuller Seminary and studying to get my MDiv, um, and I'm so grateful for this community where I can learn um, to grow and in, in ministry, and I'm, I'm really grateful for Ryan um, that I get to apprentice under him um, in hopes that one day I'll get to pastor um, a church of my own. So, that's And she'll be technically more qualified than me. Because <laughs> I have a bachelor's in art education. <laughs> um, so I'm really excited today. I think Bree and I have some really good things to share. Um, so this is kind of our thesis for today. This is where we're headed. So you can, everything we say, all of our illustrations, you can just kind of hang them on this. That Jesus, as our mediator cleanses us from sin so that we can do God's work in the world. And so today we're going to be looking uh, at a passage from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Um, so a little bit of the setting. We're in the 8th century before Christ, uh, although they didn't know that. They just knew it is now. Um, and in this point, Israel is just severely lost. So we've been, you know, as we've been going through the Old Testament, we're looking at the story of Israel that God calls a people through Abraham. Um, God wants to be king. God wants to, to rule these people as a benevolent king. Um, but they continue to look around at everybody else and say, well, no, we want to do it like all the others. Like they all have actual physical kings. This is what we want. And God says, I don't want, to, I don't want you to do that. I want you to trust me. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like, let us be like the Amalekites and the Stalactites and the Stalagmites and the Samsonites. We want to be like all the others and have our own king. He says, okay, you're going to do this. It's not going to go well. And lo and behold, it does not go well. And so um, God begins to send the prophets right before they head into exile. So last week, Steve told us the story of Esther, and that was a story that happens in exile. So we're kind of jumping back in the timeline just a little bit. And God raises up the prophet Isaiah uh, to prepare the, the Jewish people for going into exile to say, this is what happens when you wander away from allowing God to be king and to really shape you as a people. Um, and so in this particular story, we're seeing the prophet Isaiah um, being prepared to go and to speak on behalf of God, to prepare the people for what is about to happen to them. And so there's four essential movements to this little story, and I want you to be listening for them, and then we're going to go back through them. Number one, we're going to contend with the splendor of God. Number two, 
we're going to look at Isaiah's kind of radical, gross awareness of his uncleanliness. Can I get an amen? Uh, We're going to look at God's move to purify Isaiah in this radical vision. And then fourthly, we're going to look at Isaiah volunteering to go out and to speak God's word. I'm going to pray for us and then come Holy Spirit come please fill your presence this room with your presence and we ask that you rest upon us we ask that you open our minds our hearts and our souls to you and please remind us daily that our telos is the kingdom of God In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to invite you all to stand uh, for the reading of Scripture. And uh, Troy's going to give us a little background music (laughs) just to feel the gravitas of this story (laughs) as as Bree leads us. All righty. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See? This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. All right. Well done. That's how we do scripture, okay? That's how we do scripture. Well done. All right. So uh, movement number one. This story um, makes us confront the awesomeness of the God that we worship. I think that we're in in an era where a lot of us are very familiar with Uh, Jesus as our friend, as our savior, but when it comes to Jesus being king or being caught incarnate, it's something that's a little bit hard for us to reconcile. But every once in a while, we catch a glimpse of the holiness and the glory of God. What do we mean by holiness and what do we mean when we say glory? So when we say holiness, we mean that God is not like us. Um, the Hebrew word for, that is translated into holy is called kadosh. Go ahead and say that with me. Kadosh. Nice, excellent. 
And it's repeated three times in Isaiah 3 or Isaiah 4, whatever translation that you're in. Um, but the seraphim say kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. It's perfection upon perfection upon perfection. God is um, holy. He's, he's not like us. Um, guess what? He's, he's better. <laughs> he's more loving and more caring, more patient. Did I say more loving? Um, <laughs> um, and the meaning of kadosh, the, there's, there's plenty of meanings for this Hebrew word, but the, the meaning that we're going to pay attention to today um, is, is um, kadosh's commanding respect. It's, it's, it's awesome. Um, it's someone who is singled out, consecrated for. And I think that is really, really important. God is holy. God is awesome. He's singled out. He's unlike no other. He's in a totally different category than we are. And our next word that we're going to define is glory. And that Hebrew word is kavod. Go ahead and say that with me. Kavod. Nice. <laughs> There's a couple of meanings of the word kavod. Um, and particularly today, we're going to pay attention to the word glory. So specifically, Yahweh's glory, which is in an it's it's a an essence uh, and his and a presence in a broader sense. So there are in the Old Testament there are plenty of times, but I've chosen six times where we see Yahweh's glory, and I think it's super important that we understand what is glory, and I thought the only way that we're going to be able to really understand that is if we see it in the Old Testament. So Yahweh's kavod is reserved only for God. We see that in Isaiah 42, 8. Um, Jesus, uh, Yahweh says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. Yahweh's kavod is higher than the heavens, we see that in Psalm 113.4. The writer says, The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Again, in the Old Testament, we see Yahweh's kavod dwelling on earth. So, so far, we've got it's reserved for God. It's higher than the heavens. It dwells on the earth. In Psalm 85.9, it says, Surely his salvation is at hand for those who fear him that his glory may dwell in our land. Yahweh's kavod dwells on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, 16, if you remember that story with Moses. It says, The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called out to Moses out of the cloud. Yahweh's glory fills the whole earth. And that's what we see in scripture today in Isaiah 1-3. And the seraphim were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his kavod. And the last one we see is Yahweh's glory is above the earth. So not only does it dwell in the earth, but it's above the earth. In Psalm 57-5, it says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And the seraphim in this image only kind of add to the grandeur of the vision. And we see this every once in a while. We see 
Ezekiel has a very similar vision in the first chapter um, of his prophetic book. We see in the book of Revelation, these creatures, these, it calls, sometimes it's called like the four living creatures, and then we see this accompanying wheel within a wheel. So every once in a while through scripture, and it's not all the time, you know, these aren't constant places that people live. They just catch a glimpse of the throne room of God, and it's this overwhelming awe. And it's these seraphim that are giving them um, that, that kind of radical bridge between what we know to be normal life and what it looks like to be in God's presence. Um, on my thighs, I have tattooed these seraphim. Some of you have been lucky enough to see them. <laughs> when I baptized Johnny, guys, ugh, get your heads out of the gutter. But one of the things that I was thinking about when I was getting those tattoos was like, I want something that doesn't, it doesn't like, it doesn't mean something in the way that we mean something. A lot of times when we mean something, um, when we want a symbol, it's because it reduces an idea to something that makes it more manageable, right? Like this is a little icon, this is a little idea that makes something succinct in a little package. But what if these seraphim and the songs that they're singing as they're proclaiming the glory of God, it's not meant to be something that we understand. It's not something that we're meant to contain because that can become a compulsive like need in modern culture is I just need to be able to understand everything and have it in neat, tidy packages so that I can control it. But when we contend with the awesomeness and the glory of God, when we hear these seraphim singing these songs, holy, 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 it's meant to overwhelm us. But in doing so, it opens us up to something bigger than ourselves. It reposits us from being the center of our own story to recognizing the holiness and the awesomeness and the glory of God becomes the center of all creation. That the seraphim and the cherubim worship him that the created order worships him, that everything is pointing to God as the center of every part of existence. And I think that sometimes um, our familiarity with God means that we don't really contend with God's majesty. Now, I think that there's been a net positive move in the past, I'd say, 20 years within uh, especially kind of American Christianity of reclaiming the place of, of God as familiar. I think that was very necessary um, because if you look at like church history and movements, we had this vision of this otherness of God, this holiness of God that he wasn't really close to us. He's kind of, this God looks a lot like Zeus. He lives up on top of a mountain and you have to do the rain dance every once in a while just to get him to pay attention to you so he'll come and give you something. How many of you grew up with that God? Like Yahweh's holiness, he's like way the heck out there somewhere and maybe he's paying attention to us, but he probably isn't. And then, you know, especially we see it through worship, like a lot of worship songs of the past 20 years were inviting us into that closeness of God, you know, God as friend, as our savior, um, who's closer to us than our very breath. And I think when you kind of, you understand your own personal journey, but you understand the journey of the church as well, it's that we're always kind of oscillating between those two visions of God because we need them both. And I think what's happening is that God is weaving them together. The more that we embrace the familiarity and the closeness of God, I think there's also that invitation to recognize the radical otherness of God. That the more God seems approachable and attainable, the more he can also seem so far beyond us and beyond our own comprehension. And I don't think you have to choose one vision of God or the other. 
I think you're, you're, the challenge to you as a follower of Jesus is to allow Jesus to weave those two things back and forth together so that you have this bigger picture of what God is really like. Uh, that otherness, um, it's a kind of image that evokes something in us. And so our next movement this morning um, is encountering God's holiness and glory stirs up in us a fear that we're not good enough to be in God's presence. So Isaiah sees in this vision something so pure and so holy that it actually reflects back onto him his own inadequacies. So he contends with the perfection of God, and his natural reaction is to see his own imperfection. But not only that, he begins to see the imperfection of his people. He says, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips living among an unclean people. And he cowers in shame. And I think this is why it's so difficult for many of us to contend with this radical vision of God, because not only does it confront us with our own shame, but we see the sins of our people, that we've got it all wrong, because we have such a radical vision of of the perfect and the ultimate good, and then we look at ourselves and we look at those around us and say, man, we've really missed the mark. I think about even the modern conversation that we're having in our country about racism and slavery. And one of the, one of the very uh, natural modern phenomenon is individualism, which says, well, it wasn't me. I didn't do that thing. So I don't bear responsibility for the past. The past is in the past, but we live in the present era. We've moved on. Or we localize uh, our ownership of systemic racism, for example. We say, well, I'm not a racist person. Bree might be. She's not. Don't worry. Um, But I'm not. And so it's very much about individualism, and we're very much divorced from history. But what we see in the way that the Jewish people understood sin was that it was a collective thing. So there's this wonderful little story. After this exile that Isaiah is preparing the people for, they come back, they begin to rebuild Jerusalem, they're rebuilding the temple, and they begin to read their scriptures again. They They hadn't contended with the scriptures in generations. And just as they're beginning to read and understand God's heart for humanity, they're overcome by the sin of their ancestors. And they begin to repent on behalf of the sin of their ancestors. And I think that's actually the biblical model that we're invited to. And this is what we see in Isaiah. Not only does he contend with his own messiness, but he says, I'm actually part of a people and we've all missed this together. And I think that that's actually really brave, right? Because a lot of times we want to say, Well, it's just about me. I mean, whatever they did in the past or whatever they're doing on the other side of the country or whatever, and that's part of the problem of what we have in our own countries because we're all so individualized. We don't take common ownership for the problems in our society. It's somebody else's problem. Somebody else has to do the fixing. Or it was in the past, but we're in a better place. And I think when we recognize in God this perfect vision, not just of what it means to be God, but what also the invitation for us to become human, more fully human, we begin to own those things more collectively. And I think that shame is a really natural response to God's perfection. But I don't think that shame is God's desire. And I think this is where we start to go wrong with a story like this, that our natural response when we see this radical vision of God is to perceive our own shame, but I don't think that that's God's actual desire. How do you locate yourself within the sovereignty of Jesus? Um, 
Do you feel inadequate? Do you feel full of shame when you sit at his, at his feet? Uh, just like Isaiah, do you pull away and say, woe is me? I grew up uh, in the Catholic Church, and I think that the Catholic Church has done a lot of wonderful things, but I also think they miss the mark with a lot of, wonder, uh, a lot of things. Um, and one of them is, is guilt and shame. Um, the unworthiness when you approach Jesus um, in the Catholic Church, you can't even talk to Jesus yourself um, because you are you're too shameful. You're, you're such on a lower level than he is. Um, I love this quote from John Mark Comer. He defines guilt and shame like this. He says, guilt is about the what and shame is about the who. Guilt says, what I did was bad and shame says, I am bad. And I want to tell you a little bit, uh, I want to share a quick story um, from a book that I read a little while ago. There's this woman, um, she was an American woman, um, kind of grew up in that European Catholic, very traditional um, ethnicity. And she had slept with a man and became pregnant. And when she birthed the baby, um, she gave the baby up for adoption. But she couldn't tell anybody, not her family, not her friends, because she would have been a, a giant disgrace to the culture, right? To, to, to her culture, to, to Catholicism, um, to her family, to her neighbors, to, to the church, to everybody. And so she hid that secret for years and years and years. And every day she would pray night and afternoon and evening. She would pray to God. And when she knelt down at her bed and she looked up at Jesus, all she felt was shame. She saw a God who was angry, a God who didn't love her, a God who was, was putting that shame, not God was putting that shame on her, but the culture that she lived in put that shame on her and then they said, this is what God would call you. This is what God would say to you. And she actually um, took that shame uh, and those secrets um, to um, her grave when she passed away. And God, like Ryan says, he, he doesn't desire that. When we stand at the feet of Jesus, he doesn't desire us, um, desire us to see him as an angry God, he desires us to see him as a loving God, as a God who is generous, who is patient, who is kind, who is loving. And when we look into the mirror, God doesn't want us to look and see shame. He wants us to look and see that we are children, his children, that we are made in the image of Jesus, and that we are also loving and kind and patient because of what Jesus did for us. One of the things that we're realizing more now than ever is that however you envision God shapes what you think about yourself, even if you don't believe in God. Did you know this? Like even if you're a convinced atheist, whatever the God is that you don't believe in still informs how you see yourself. And so for many of us, if we've grown up with this idea of the God who is so perfect and so holy and can't really stand us, that shapes our own understanding of ourselves 
uh, our behavior in the world and how we interact with other people. And that's why it's imperative that part of the work of what Jesus is doing is redeeming us from these small and false images of God. And what happens is because that vision of God is so subconscious, you imprinted upon that at a very young age if you grew up in the church. Like intellectually now, your adult brain knows like, oh, absolutely, God's not really like that. But there's something deep within you that responds to these visions of God and says, I'm supposed to feel guilt and I'm supposed to see shame. And so I think this is where we see the Christophany of the story. Remember, we're talking about Christophanies as the revelation of Jesus in the Old Testament, even though his name isn't fully revealed uh, until um, the, the, new, the, the Gospels when he comes to earth um, in a human form. And I wonder if this seraphim that approaches Isaiah is actually Jesus. Okay, that's my, that's my bold claim today, that this seraphim that takes the, the coal from the fire and comes and purifies Isaiah's lips, that is Jesus himself. Because Jesus, as the heart of God, enters into our messiness and offers us freedom from sin, guilt, and shame, bridging the gap between us and God. So Isaiah, um, obviously we read he realizes that he's uncleansed, that he's unholy, and he's now in the presence of God. And so this is the first time we hear him speak. He says, it's me. I'm uncleansed. I'm unholy. And all of a sudden, I, I keep visualizing, I think our, our imagination is just, it's too limited to really grasp what these seraphims look like. So I'm just imagining. <laughs> I'm just imagining like a, a jet, a, a fighter jet, just like right to Isaiah's face and he's just kind of like standing there and what in the world is happening? I'm envisioning like these big giant barbecue tongs with this like little coal just zooming straight to Isaiah. And the reason why um, the seraphim is, is holding those tongs is not because the coal's hot, I mean it is hot, but not because he thinks, oh I'm going to get burned. This coal is is holy. This coal is God. Um, Isaiah would have been in the temple, I think, when we envision, when we vision a vision, if that makes sense. <laughs> we think, oh, it might have been a subconscious thought for Isaiah, or maybe he was dreaming, and, and now he's in that realm of sleep. He was uh, and fully present. And so the, uh, we see that heaven and earth meet at this time in the temple. And God, Yahweh, is with Isaiah in the temple, which would have been in Jerusalem, which Isaiah would have been there every single day praying, lighting incense, uh, which helps um, kind of set the mood for God to come. And so I, I really do believe that that, that, that coal is, is an extension of, of God. It, it, I, I agree with Ryan. I, I really think that um, that coal is, is, is Jesus, and that seraphim is, is Jesus. And, and when that coal immediately touches Isaiah's mouth, it, it cleanses him. Um, it awakens his inner soul. Something is, is happening that Isaiah doesn't understand, um, but he's feeling something. He feels, he feels something. Just as a 
And this is the thing that is most profound to me in this story. Because when I try to live into some of these stories, especially contending with God, I tend to fill in the emotional gaps. Do you guys do that? Like scripture doesn't always contain a whole lot of emotional context. And what I perceive in this, in my mind's eye so often, if I'm Isaiah, is like I'm, I'm seeing the glory of God. I'm seeing these seraphims crying, holy, holy, holy. And I'm like, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips among unclean people. And then God goes, you are absolutely right. How many of you, that's what God does. He goes, you are so unclean and you're so gross and you totally need to get out of here because you're messing up my whole perfection thing. You know, my lightning and there's like, there's in other stories, there's like rivers of ice with lightning on them, which sounds cool and like all this stuff. And God's like, ew, get out of here with your cooties. Like, I can't stand, how many of you, it's like, that's how you, the God you grew up with. He's like, I can't stand to have you in my presence because you're such a disgusting little piece of garbage, right? But we're filling that into the story. We're making that part of it. Like, our imaginations, because we've been informed by our own heritage, make those kinds of images of God. But God does not wag his finger at us for being gross and God does not demand that we clean ourselves up before we're worthy of his presence. When we met on Thursday, Bree brought up, she's like, why did we feel like we needed to wear khakis to church as a way to like clean up for God? Because khakis are more holy than denim, obviously, you know? But so many of us, we, that religiosity, that religious spirit is, I have to do something to myself. I have to clean up myself to make myself presentable to God because I cannot come to God as I am right now. And the reason that I see this action of God purifying Isaiah through the coals in the hand of the seraphim as Christ is because when I read the story of Jesus, I see this kind of pattern. I see this evidence of the character of God. There was a lot of different stories we could look at, but this is just one little vignette that I love so much in Matthew 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, these Pharisees, they're like so many of our religious leaders today, going, no, 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 God is holy, which means he can't be far in our presence. And so when you and I are made holy, that means you and I can't be in the presence of gross people. Okay. I will say it again. I can't remember what I just said. <laughs> just kidding, Steve. We have this, if God is holy and he can't stand to be in the midst of our mess, when we're made holy, that means that we can't stand to be in the midst of other people's mess. So these Pharisees, just like many of our religious leaders today, just like many of us, that's what we think. And so we're neither in the world nor particularly of the world. And so what do we do in the holiness movement? We create Christian schools and Christian colleges and Christian music and Christian movies, and we pull ourselves away from the world because we're afraid of the cooties. We're afraid, ooh, it's going to get on us. Ooh, I can't stand to associate with gross, dirty people because now I'm holy and I'm righteous. And we're just like these Pharisees. 
And I think the radical thing that Jesus is demonstrating here is that it's Jesus' holiness that actually gives him the permission and the courage to step right up into your mess. Because he's like, hey, I know who I am, and I know where I come from, and there's nothing that you can do to affect that. God's holiness is not effective. Like, you can't, you can't mess up God's holiness. He's not particularly concerned about your mess. And it's actually his holiness and his perfection that gives him the possibility of being right up next to you and going, hey, it's fine. I actually have something to say about this. There's something here that I can actually do. And I think that's the challenge to us today. Do we have that vision of God and his holiness that invites shame and guilt that we can't possibly be in his presence, but then we turn around and we offer that to the rest of the world and say, oh, I can't possibly be anywhere present in the world because I might get those holiness cooties on us. Or do we actually believe it is us being made holy that gives us permission to be right in the mess of the world with compassion? Yeah, I think Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has done that for us. And, and he has cleansed us from sin, right? He's collected us back to God, back to each other. And he raised us up. He's, he's equipped us to join with him in his rule and reign. And I think that's so special. Um, in Isaiah's moment, Isaiah goes from an, an all of fear of God to an oi of joyful adoration. And it's that defining moment, that catalyzing experience um, that changes the direction of Isaiah's life. And so Isaiah challenges us to really examine what we've received from Jesus and then how we go out to, to living that in this world. Um, like Ryan said, not only in our Christian world, but, but in the whole entire world. Um, God's glory reigns throughout the entire world. And... Um, here we go. When we really receive the forgiveness Jesus offers us, we jump to do God's work, not as a way to earn favor with God, but because we've been transformed. Right? Jesus transformed us. He's planted inside us a seed. He's activated a will of participation in us. John Golden Gay is an Old Testament scholar, and, and he says this. He says, but God cleanses his lips, Isaiah's lips, by a sacramental action that will enable his lips to become a means of serving Yahweh. That sacramental action that, that Jesus, or excuse me, that Yahweh does is a transforming moment in Isaiah's life. So here's the way to know if you've really accepted the gift of forgiveness from Christ. When God says, who will go? Do you jump at the chance and go, here I am? Now, this is the thing. I think this is the, the other kind of counteraction. If on one side, it's like we have to work really, really hard to earn our place in God's presence. The other extent is that we take from God and we receive from God, but we don't actually allow it to do anything to us. It's kind of like a false sense of grace. And it still really becomes only about what we get out of God and not actually participating with God in the work of redeeming the world. And one of the things that we're looking at in renewing this year overall is, yes, we have been saved from something. We've been saved from sin, which is when our egos take control and we consume other people, um, the broken systems of the world that continue to perpetuate the oppressor and the oppressed, when it becomes uh, you know, the, the lies of the enemy that comes to seek, kill, and destroy. We've been saved from all these things. 
But for a lot of us, the gospel, it stops there. I've been saved from all this stuff, and I just kind of twiddle my thumbs until I die, and then I get to go to this place called heaven, the kingdom of heaven. It's like this other place. Rather than recognizing we've been saved from something so that we can also be saved for something. And we're saved for the work of advancing the kingdom. And I think that is the, it's, it's, to me, it's like, I'm trying to parse my words here very carefully because, yes, there can be a place where we're trying to earn our place in God's world uh, by working really hard to do it. And that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is when you have really, truly received the grace and the love of God, the forgiveness offered to you through Christ, when God says, who will go and do my work? You're like, sign me up. Because like after what I just experienced of the holiness and the awesomeness of God, like I'm in. I want to do it. Because I've been transformed from the inside out. And of course I want to participate with God in the work of advancing his kingdom. To, uh, to um, do you remember? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> what is your defining moment or catalyzing experience um, that made you see God with an all uh, an allness of joyful adoration? Um, Ray Ortland, he's the president of Renewal Ministries. He says, "If God's grace is melting your natural God resistance, you know it's the central experience in your life." You'll know it. You'll know it when it hits you. Or if it has hit you, <laughs> you'll know that's the experience. It's, 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 sorry, you can't, you can't miss it. Um, and, and like Ryan said, when we're captivated by God's glory, I'll hold it with two hands. Um, <laughs> we, we do desire to be sent ones. It's an expression. It's a posture of our praise. Um, it's the way we worship and the way that we give adoration to Jesus. And so it makes me think of, I think when God asked Isaiah, "Who's who's gonna? Who are we gonna call? Who who's gonna send us?" Isaiah said, "Pick me. Pick me. I'll do it. I'll do it." And it's it's an outward posture of the heart that that He's raised His hand. That He's that He's willing to go out and, and I think it brings me to like when we worship you raise your hands worship um it it's it's not what are people thinking of me uh what what, what will people think if I raise both hands it's it, it's it's an expression of our love of God it's an expression of our worship and so now just pause Think about that for a second. In our posture in worship, are we more concerned about how we are look to other people? Or are we positioning ourselves to perceive the glory and splendor of God? Continue. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, our heart, our mind, our spirit, they lead our body. But, but try it today during worship. Raise your hands. Raise both of them. Because your body will also lead your mind, your, your soul. And it will posture your heart in a sense that I'm so thankful for who God is and who he's made to be. I'm so thankful for Jesus as my mediator. I'm so thankful that Jesus has done what he did 
and that I get to worship him with an allness of joyful adoration. I want to invite Paul to go ahead and, and come down. I was going to um, read a little bit from 2 Corinthians 5, but I feel like uh, we're going to get there. I'm not in a rush, so um, we'll just kind of leave that for another day. Um, but one of the things that strikes me about this story is that our, our three primary church values are echoed in this story. We talk about uh, through intimacy with God our Father, we learn how to inhabit our identity in Christ, um, and that informs our purpose as the Spirit-led church, okay? So intimacy, identity, and purpose. And a lot of us grew up with a religion where it's the opposite. It's if I behave appropriately, then maybe I get to become something. Like I earn my identity through my behavior by being a good little Christian boy or a good little Christian girl, then eventually, if I'm really good, like if I get enough stars on my sheet, then I actually get to enter into the presence of God, right? How many of you grew up like that kind of religiosity? Now that, see, the work is that God is undoing that and he's kind of reverting that model and saying, no, 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 it's through your intimacy with me that you begin to understand who you are in Christ, that your identity in Christ, it's a gift to be received. It's not something that you merely earn. But as you allow that, that gift that you receive of being the beloved of God, as it sinks down deep into you, it begins to radically shift the way that you perceive your place in the world. And so when God says, who will go? You say, send me. Not because I'm trying to earn something from God. Not because I'm trying to behave my way into his presence. But because I recognize that he has done something for me so radical that I can't hold it in. I have to allow that to flow through me in my, in my gifts, in my talents, in the things in, in this world that break my heart. That's a big indicator of like what I'm called to do in the positions or the privilege that I've been given in this life to go out and to be about my father's business. And again, it's not because I'm trying to impress him. It's because I just cannot wait to participate with him in the redemption of the world. And so we're going to pray in a way that leads us on Isaiah's journey of awakening. We're going to pray a prayer of confession. And this will be a, a prayer that will be very familiar to many of you, especially if you grew up in a liturgical tradition. But we're going to slow it down and we're going to pray little pieces of this prayer. And there's going to be a significant amount of time for you, um, between you and the Lord, to kind of confess some things. You say, well, why do we confess our sins if we've already been forgiven? Uh, you, you have been forgiven, but you need to sometimes articulate it to know it. And I think a lot of times when we don't speak out the things that are heavy on our hearts, we are actually enslaved by them. Like we hold on to shame and guilt because we think that that's our proper posture and that's who we truly are. But when we speak things out, something happens to us where we are able to release those things. And so we're going to pray a prayer of confession. And then we're going to turn that outwardly and we're going to begin to pray for the world. Um, Pope Francis said, you pray for the poor and then you feed them. That's how prayer works. And so we pray our way into the world that we might see it differently to begin to recognize where God might call us to his, advance his kingdom. So we'll begin our prayer of confession just sitting where we are. And, um, as Bree just mentioned, you know, our, uh, our hearts and our minds tend to follow our bodies. If we're closed off physically, we're usually closed off emotionally. But if we're open physically, we're open emotionally and mentally. So I want you to just kind of open up your body to be in a posture to engage with God 
and to receive his truth. And so as I said, together um, we will pray and then there's a question after each portion of the prayer for you to sit with for about a minute. So we pray together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. So take a moment. What thoughts, words, deeds are weighing on you right now that shame would make you hide from admitting? Let's just take a moment. not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Who have I resisted the call to love because I'm afraid? Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. In what ways am I being invited to walk because I have been forgiven? about this before. Why do we pray out loud? It's because God knows these things that are in us, but he wants us to know that we know these things. And so when we pray out loud, it's still kind of a form of confession, but we're giving more shape to the things that are on our heart to go, wow, actually, yes, that's the thing that God has placed on my heart. And so through these prayers, we're going to be praying for the church universal. Maybe you want to pray for the church that you grew up in or church that your friend goes to or whatever that might be, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, we're going to pray for our nation and all nations through government. Can you pray for the president? Yes, you can. You can always pray for the president, and you always should. Um, we're going to pray for people that are close to us, our friends and family. We're going to pray for people who are suffering in this moment. Um, and we're going to have just a moment of quiet remembrance of those who have already passed on. So I'll pray. I'll leave a moment for you to pray out loud, and then I'm going to say, Lord, in your mercy, and you respond, hear our prayer. So let us pray for the church and for the world. Grant, almighty God, 
that all who confess your name may be united in your truth, live together in your love, and reveal your glory in the world. Let's pray for churches everywhere. this land and of all nations in the ways of justice and peace that we may honor one another and serve the common good. We pray for President Biden, for Vice President, for Governor DeSantis, Senator Rubio, Mayor Dyer, Ukraine's President Zelensky, and Russia's President Putin. for the earth as your own creation, that we may use its resources rightly in the service of others and to your honor and glory. whose lives are closely linked with ours and grant that we may serve Christ in them and love one another as he loves us. Give them courage and hope in their troubles and bring them the joy of your salvation. mercy all who have died that your will for them may be fulfilled and we pray that we may share with all your saints in your eternal kingdom 
Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. So we're going to enter back into worship. Um, but a couple things that we want to do. I want to invite uh, some of our elders and our leaders to kind of be on the side. If there's something in you, if you're still struggling with shame or guilt especially, like if you're somebody who still struggles, you have that vision of God on the throne that wags his finger at you for being dirty and disgusting, I want you to come and allow someone to pray over you and to speak words of life. And in the same way that Jesus extends his hand with that purifying coal for them to be that ambassador of Jesus to do the same for you. And for all of us, I'm gonna invite us uh, to come to the table to receive Holy Communion. Um, our ancestors, uh, the, the desert fathers and mothers in the first couple centuries of the church, they recognized the connection between the story of Isaiah uh, and the, the, the Eucharist, the Lord's table, the Holy Communion. Uh, St. John of Damascus said this, Wherefore, in all fear, and with a pure conscience and undoubting faith, let us approach, let us receive the body of the crucified one, with eyes, lips, and faces tuned toward it. Let us receive the divine burning coal, so that the fire of the coal may be added to the desire within us to consume our sins and enlighten our hearts, so that by this communion of the divine fire, we may be set afire and deified. And so, Father, I pray, would you now alight your Holy Spirit upon these elements that they would become for us the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, that as we take them into us, something happens to us. We are transformed, we are forgiven, and we are equipped to go back out into the world to speak your words of life, to, to enter into that ministry of reconciliation where we draw back to you the world itself. Lord, deliver us from sh the shame and guilt that we carry because we have small views of you and your radical, awesome power. Deliver us from those small visions of God so that we can walk the world as your forgiveness. Bless us, Lord, as we bless you. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.